right, and we're back to another episode of the Land Jam Podcast, episode seven, Aktung Flieger. Uh, so it's me, Tommy, and... Hey, hey everyone, it's Sanj here. Um, All right, so we're here actually discussing one of Sanj's favorite topics, um, which are uh, Flieger watches. And Sanj, what is a Flieger watch? Flieger, well, Flieger watch is basically a pilot's watch, and Flieger, um, the word Flieger comes from from Germany. It's a German word. Um, so it's catered to pilots. Um, and I think you're going to start it off, Tommy, about how it all started with the type of watch and all. But the sure. Flieger watches, you, the, to the listeners out there, you may or may have not seen it, but it's there. Um, and can I would say it's not as popular, but as dive watches but still pretty popular as far as the design and aesthetic looks goes um the key one being legibility yeah correct yeah i mean basically you know i guess we'll start off with where the story where the flieger actually came from right so the the flieger watch begins in uh basically the second world war um between the war, Germany, uh, when it lost the First World War, had to agree not to have an air force. So the Germans, uh, when the Nazis took over in the 30s, they had to secretly build an air force uh, behind closed doors. And part of building that air force is uh, a watch that would have to sit on every pilot's wrist, every navigator's wrist. Because uh, back then, before GPS, you had to use uh, dead reckoning navigation, which is basically you, you find a landmark, you plot a heading, and then using time, you can plot yourself on that heading. Um, that's the only way you could really fly from A to B. The only way navigators can get any anywhere. Uh, it's the same thing at sea as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think radar wasn't even invented at the time, so it was very rudimentary instrumentations on these aircrafts, right? I mean, um, so pilots had to rely on specific set of instruments, and one of them was really their watches. I mean, right, right. So the German Air Ministry in I think 1935. Uh, put in a, a request for bids from private firms for what they called, I'm going to butcher this, it's the Beobachten Suren, or the BR, which is basically, uh, in English, the observation watch. And this is the watch that navigators wear, uh, pilots wear on their wrists. Uh, it belonged, interestingly, it belonged to the Luftwaffe. So pilots couldn't take it home. They would be given a watch before the mission, and they'd be expected to return the watch after the mission. Yes, uh, that's kind, correct. Kind yeah. of quirky, yeah. <laughs> kind of different from how the Allies did it, where you kind of owned your watch, uh, at least till the end of the war. But, uh, yeah, so that's basically where this whole lineage of watches began. It's really mid-1930s Germany. Right, yeah. I mean, during the rearmament, um, they, like, like you said, they needed to find a specification for the watches. And the, what was actually really interesting is... The specifications were pretty strict, right? And to the point, really. I mean, at the key one being legibility, um, that was absolutely a necessity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if you look at so basically the original Flieger watches, you've got two types. You got a Type A and Type B. Um, the Type A was officially in production from 1940 to January 1941. So this is the classic watch that was at the beginning of the war. Um, you've got a for people who haven't seen it, you just imagine a clean dial, um, one to eleven, with a triangle and two dots at the top for orientation purposes. Um, and then in January 1941, till the end of the war, uh, Germany switched to Type B, which was a busier dial, it's a double ring design, um, hours on the inside, minutes on the outside. Um, so it's a much more complicated look, but both serve the same purpose and both sort of uh, had similar things in common. So. Um, the cases were huge. They were like 55 millimeters in diameter, up to 55 uh, for certain models. Yeah, and I think 55 was the common one. I think that was issued up by the, as part of the specifications by the Luftwaffe. Um, but yeah, they probably. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much like a wall clock that you wear <laughs> yeah. on your wrist. Um, but you would wear that on top of your flight jacket, so it exactly. wasn't really worn as a watch. It was watch worn as a, a piece of instrument that you. Would put onto your flight jacket when you got into the into the uh into the plane so it's uh you know not very practical for today's use um 
but it had some interesting things. You know, it was regular to be a chronometer, so it was very, very um, accurate. Um, same kind of accuracy that you'd expect on a naval chronometer. You know, same idea. You know, you, you'd have to have it in, in an aerial chronometer. And it, it, it had a hacking movement, so you could stop and synchronize the watches. Yeah, I mean, prior to yeah. these missions, um, I think the standard procedures was, yeah, the pilots got the watches from the Luftwaffe, and they would all synchronize the time to a credible time source that was something extremely precise, and then begin um, their mission, really. Yeah, yeah. And um, during the war, there were about five companies that built it, uh, built these two types of fleegers. You had the Elangasona, you had Laco, which was the old Lacker and Company, uh, Stowa, Walter Stortz, uh, Wempe, and IWC, which, you know, all these companies are still in operation. And actually, um, if you go on either Laco or Stowa, I know for a fact you can find the exact same Type A, Type B uh, fleegers for sale. Actually, the Stowa fleegers are, there's, there's a huge backup, there's a huge demand for them. Um, oh, really? I did not know there was even a, a demand for the Stowas. Oh, yeah. The Stoba Type A, I think, has like several weeks, if not several months behind in production. Wow. Because it's, it's a small company, right? So basically, the brand went under and um, it was sold to a third party. And he, for what I've heard, he's done a great job bringing the brand back to life. But it's a much smaller operation. So they're, they're far back in meeting their orders. But I, I think, you know, I don't visually they look the same because obviously the specs are the specs and you really can't play with it. Uh, but from what I've heard, the Stowa one is really the popular one to get. Yeah, I mean, there's also Laco as well. Um, when um, researching, I did not know the company Laco even existed as a as a watch brand. So, but credit to them, both of them actually keeping still still staying faithful to the design of the Flieger watch. Um, I mean, these are clean dials, no nonsense. Um, just to the point, really, you know. Yeah, very, very, very much uh, faithful to the original design. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unlike the original design where it was up to 55 millimeters, they actually have sized it down for today's taste. So you, I'm, I'm at the LACO website right now. You can get the same type A, type B for 42 millimeters, 39 millimeters, and that's a very reasonable size. That's something you could actually wear. Right. So it, it's interesting. And, and they've evolved the design as you go. They have more updated versions, but... Uh, you know, if you want the original Luftwaffe, you know, watch, you can get it. Right. So the Type A is the clean, you know, 1 through 11 with the triangle and two dots at the uh, Top, clock, correct, on yeah. the 12 o'clock to indicate uh, orientation. Um, type B is the double ring, right? Where you yeah, have five your... increments of five minutes. Yeah, correct. And then... And, sorry, yeah, uh, and the second ring in the the smaller ring is to, shows the hour, right? Yeah, hours on the inside, minute uh, minutes on the outside. Right, and I think they probably did that again. We have to go back to how things were back at the time. I mean, a watch was, I mean, not just for telling time; it was used as dead reckoning flying. So you had to know and figure out the time. How much time has elapsed since your last, say, waypoint, right? Yeah, so, the exact minutes, yeah. So it was important. It was probably the most important piece of kit uh, beside the maps that, uh, you know, these guys flew with. So, you know, it's no joke. And, you know, you can actually look at the Type A and draw a straight line to the IWC Mark 11. I mean, if you look at the design of the Mark 11, right. not a whole lot different from the Type A. It's right. basically 1 to 11 triangle, two dozen on the top. And uh, the interesting thing about IWC is it made watches for both the Allies and the Nazis. Yeah, right? that was the interesting thing, yeah. So <laughs> they were actually, you know, in the same factory, they were building watches for both sides. So I wonder how they even uh, were even allowed to do that, but that's another story. And they're a neutral country. Switzerland was... Uh, that is country. true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Good point. So they were able to get away with it. Obviously, the German companies made for Germany alone. But, right. Uh, well, anyway, so we... You know, that's the Type A, Type B. That's World War II. Uh, Germany well, loses World going... War II. Germany's partitioned. East Germany basically goes under the Soviet Union. But West Germany is uh, sort of gets independent in the 50s. And then the Flieger story continues. Yeah, I mean, but going back to Type B, I mean, it's... So, the reason why I wanted to go back to Type B is I have in my small collection basically 
uh, a pilot swatch. Um, it's and it's it's nothing Flieger related, but it's a Hamilton Khaki GMT watch. Um, but it's got a hybrid of the Type A Type B style, whereas the I mean the Type B being that I still have the five to sixty minutes. I don't have the triangle marker because it's not a true Flieger watch. Okay. And the and the second the second ring is shows the. Uh, second time zone um but this is more of the look than uh, as of i say functionality a couple of reasons why so as part of the specifications for a flieger watch it had to be legible but also in dark environments i mean you're doing nighttime missions so you had to have these watches that have a high degree of illumination right yeah, yeah. so they used what radium was it I think back then it was radium. It wasn't tritium yet. Yeah. They were still using radium. Yeah. But long story short, these things were like lamps at the night, you know, that you can definitely tell time. Yeah. Um, my Hamilton Khaki, I was trying to use it yesterday, and uh-huh. I was too. My nose was touching the crystal because I could not see the time. It's, really? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think radium. Had better luminescence than tritium. It was just yeah. more fatal, so that's kind of the, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. The trade off there. I mean, like the the markings, uh, the five minute markings on my watch is not really illuminated at all. It's just for show. But the the one cool thing is because I have the five minute markings, I can easily tell time. It is amazing how this layout is so functional. Yeah. That's why I'm a big fan of the Type B watch. That probably why they went with double ring. Yeah, I mean, to me, if you ask me about personal taste, I think the Type B is a little busy. I would have gone with the Type A. And I, I like the IWC Mark 11. You know, so right. That's kind of where I sit. But no, I see. I, I see what you're saying, especially yeah. when you're trying to keep time as accurately as possible uh, when you're doing these, you know, complex turns or maneuvers. Uh, it's important. So yeah, and in yeah. not just that. I mean, one of the other features of um, these Flieger watches back in the day was the crown. It was always like an oversized onion crown, right? To turn in case Correct. they need to adjust yeah. the time. I mean, just remember these pilots were up in the air. Um, you know, it was definitely not warm, so they wore gloves and clothing and whatnot. So they had to adjust. If they have to adjust their watches, they had to adjust it with the gloves. So make an oversized crown. Yeah, I mean, this is before pressurized cabins. You know, you were basically dressing for winter when you flew. So exactly, it was a very different time than uh, even ten years later, where you you could be in in t-shirts and shorts and fly. Exactly, you, know? you had to pretty much dress for winter time every time you got up in the air. So and yeah, I mean, you had the big onion onion crowd and hacking movement, which is very important as well because right. you quickly quickly synchronize the watches before missions and right. even as you go along if need be. Now, were these Flieger watches back in the day, were they also anti-magnetic? That was... I think there was a measure of anti... So basically... All right, we should talk about this. All right, so being anti-magnetic is not that big of a deal. And I'll tell you why, right? All you have to do is put an iron or a, a iron case to the back of the watch. Right. And you, can, you have enough anti-magnetism to deal with 95% of your situation right but i'm saying that's that's what the inherent anti-magnetism built into the watch but i think a lot of watches had that right but i think that was one also one of the specification that had to have an iron core was it as far as to be designated a flieger watch or my was that loose Uh, i can't verify that that i'm not a hundred percent sure of so I I read it somewhere. I just want to confirm it. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really the 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 emphasis is on luminescence, hacking, um, chronometer specification, yeah, crown like that, and basically the, the the look of the actual dial is what they specified, right? Yeah. So okay, so that's that's the basic Type A Type B. So war ends. You've got Soviet Union, East Germany's gone, West Germany's coming back. What happens then, Sench? Well, they start making chronographs. Um, so, so here's my thing on chronographs. Uh, how do I start off with? So, we have you know a lot of industry in the watch 
there's a lot of chronographs out there. How many of us do really do use it? Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's was actually used for a purpose, even in as an aviator flieger watch. Um, where are you going with this? So basically, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll describe some of the flieger watches here, but I wonder if they actually had to use it as part of their functions, maybe for dead reckoning, I guess. Um, I don't think, I mean, at a certain point, right, I mean, when you're going into the 50s and 60s, you're, you're going away from dead reckoning. You know, you've got some other tools for navigation, whether it's radar, whether it's um, radio signals or triangulation. So they had other tools for it. Um, but, I mean, you know, as a pilot, I'm sure there's uses for a chronograph. I mean, yeah, I mean, if the specifications ask for it or if the military asks for it, there is always probably a need for it. But I wonder yeah. if they actually did use it at times. I'm not sure. Good I'm question. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know when that when something like that would come up. But okay. I actually, I kind of jumped the jumped the wagon. So if you're going to mention chronographs, you actually do need to go back to World War II because they had two uh, chronographs during the Second World War. Which ones were they? That's a good question. I don't have that in my notes because I was keeping. So they had the uh, the Hanhart. Uh, that was released in 1939, and Tutima, the German company, released one in 1941. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Here we go. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, these chronos were either mono or dual pusher, and they, they I mean, roughly, you know, to, to the untrained eye, look like an early Breguet Type 20. They did, and I don't think these chronos were... So these chrono fliegers were a slightly deviating from, I guess, what you can call the flieger specifications, because... Typically, these chrono watches were a lot smaller than the 55 millimeter requirements. Right, right. Um, but and, you know, by, by, by nature, they were different. So you had a bicompax watch, yes. right? So you had two, two subdials, and you yep. got the second hand in the middle. Yep. And um, Hanhart, one of the companies, had a weird quirk, which yep. is the red pusher. Yeah, so the red pusher was to... It's basically, remember, we're going back to legibility so it was to allow the pilots easily reset the watch or find the pusher that resets the watch so they don't accidentally press the wrong one just in case so they just painted it red and they used the red enamel and just made sure that um the reset was different from the start stop yeah it's very simple and anhart still does it today and anhart is one of those brands that i think is very underrated i think they make a great watch i don't know why they're not more popular so didn't hanhart so wasn't it on the west occupied region of germany or it became part of france or under france influence as far as the zone of influence in the west side of germany i'm not sure about that yeah okay what have you heard um I think there were also. I have to double check my notes on those, but I believe they were also issuing out to other air forces other than the German air force. Okay. Uh, um, I That's think they were supplying to the French air force, if I'm not correct, after the war. We'll have to double check on that. Yeah. That's a, that's a big statement there, Sanch. I could be wrong on this one, but I remember watching a video on it. You know who made it famous, right? The Hanhart Chrono. You know who rocked that? Was it Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen, yeah. Yep. That was his watch of choice. While he was a race car driver and, uh, you know, when he was, uh, I guess, pretty much the coolest guy on earth, he wore a handheart. Yeah, that's fascinating because, you know, you associate Steve McQueen with uh, Tag Heuer. Yeah. You, or Heuer Monaco, at the time, right? the Monaco. But, uh, yeah, so the another unique thing about the handheart um, is the bezel, and it's completely different from all other bezels, where it's kind of got like a fluted um, kind of design to it. And right. however, you can it has a a red indicated notch. I wouldn't say a notch; it's got like a red indication. Usually at the twelve o'clock, but I think you could rotate this bezel around to any um, other position. Um, so that you can use it as another indication as far as timing for timing purposes. Don't ask me what they really used it for, but it was one of the requirements actually. Wonder if you 
use it as split seconds almost. You know, move the red to where the the second hand is now, and then do it again. Right. You, know, you don't have to reset it every time. I'm not sure. That's a good question. But I wonder if that's one of the reasons they had it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So okay. So those are the two ones that were during the war. So let's go post war. These are the these are the ones that, you know, I'm kind of excited about. So yeah, no Hanhart. Um, in 1955, released something called the 417, and it was issued to pilots on the reformed uh, Bundesluftwaffe in 55, and it's basically similar to the what we were just talking about earlier, and it was actually the one that Steve McQueen wore. Um, okay, so he wore a Hanhart 417. Yes, and also, interestingly, it was also issued to men flying... F-104 Starfighters. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. The, the most fatal Western jet ever. That <laughs> <laughs> thing is a rocket. thing is a rocket, yeah, if, if you can survive it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can maybe talk about that another day, but I, I find it a fascinating aircraft. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Built well, for I didn't know it was the 417 that he wore. I thought he wore one of the World War II eras. Watches. Well, yeah, I mean, these were similar to the World War II eras. They do look similar, yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, even to this day, it still looks pretty much true to what it was in history. That's awesome. Yeah. The only it, thing I don't like about the Hanhart is the uh, the minute and hour hands. It's not my style. It's some some uh, watchmakers use these. I I call them like the hour hand looks like a cobra serpent hand. That's not my style. I um really you don't like it. No, no, not at all. I, I, I don't see the need for it. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I, I think it looks. I think it looks pretty cool. I don't know. I, I can. I can take it. I'm uh, open-minded. The one other thing that always bothers me about certain, including a handheld, you know, because these watches were smaller in size, so they had to put a lot of functionality and legibility as much as possible. But the dual registers, which are in the three and nine o'clock position, they mask some of the. Uh, our numbers, basically the Arabic numerals from the yeah. watch. Well, the three and the nine are gone, right? Yeah, and also not just the three; it's the two and the four, and They're the big. Ten, yeah. yeah, the register completely masks them, so it kind of cuts them out. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't complete the full look at the watch device, and that's a big no-no for me. I hear you. I hear you. It's it's divisive, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's such an old design. It's such a classic design. I think it's okay. kind of burned its place now. But I hear you. It can be a turnoff for some people. Right. So another watch that was issued to the F one hundred four Starfighters was actually in nineteen fifty seven, where the company Youngins, um, yeah. which they're still today, still make watches. Um, they made issued a watch called the Youngins J eight eight. The interesting thing about this particular watch is the bezel itself. It's got like yeah. How would you describe it? It looks almost like a like a pie pan. Yeah, it's so. In a way, it looks like a little bit uh, to the Omega Seamaster that I have because it's not exactly circular. It's got these angles, right? Yeah. So that is. Uh, very fascinating. See, so I'm actually looking at the Hodinkee website, and they actually had a original J88 for sale in their shop. Um, this one was made for the German Air Force, uh, and was in produ- this particular version was in production from 56 to 67. Yeah, and it's 38 um, millimeters in diameter. Um, the loom is actually tritium now. Yeah, so they must have switched in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, someone in there they made. You know, it was discovered how dangerous it was. But, yeah, after uh, finding out how many well, people yeah. pilots got radiation. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful watch. I mean, the one on Hodinkee's already sold, but I'll put it in the show notes so people can take a look at what it looks like. Yeah. It's a good example. It's a really good example. Yeah, no. And and the thing is, Jungen still makes this watch, to the, at least the style of the watch to this day, um, with the same interesting-looking bezel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean a lot of these companies kept their original designs. Like even Hanhart still keep, does the red red uh, reset button, and they keep the original designs. Uh, Junghans still does, I think, the J eighty eight, like you said. Yep. Um, 
Loa, it's uh, Laco and Stoa still make their Type A, Type Bs. It's interesting. Like you know, these are original World War II designs that kind of never went out of fashion. They they kept it. Yeah, um, really true to form. And and the Type A and the Type B watches have been copied by other watchmakers, including other companies like Hamilton, like I just talked about earlier with my style. Um, right. But there's also. Yeah, there's a true to form Type B, I think, in in their khaki lineup that's has a Type B style. But other watchmakers do it. Um, very common. It's just that it's yeah, not it's, as it's become, it's become such a ubiquitous design that you know you really unless you know the story or where it came from, you know, you just know it as a you know quote fleeter. You don't really know why or where it came from. So right, exactly. It's like, you know, Submariner. Like, you know, that's been copied so many times, even by other companies. Like, Tag, Tag Warriors, like Aqua Racer looks, you know, many ways like a Submariner. But, you know. Right, of course. The original is the original. You can't beat it, right? So, the next one is, I think is a personal, one of your favorites. Um, it's the Hoyer Leonidas Bundeswehr. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. in 1964, Hoyer, before... You know, this was Hoyer before they became Tag Hoyer. Um, merged with another watch timekeeper company called Leonidas. And they produced watches for the Italian military. And it was known as the Hoyer Leonidas. And they supplied um, Bundeswehr watches to the military. And it's slightly bigger. It was a 43mm case with a hand-wound Vajou movement. And... It was, I believe, issued in 67. Yeah. And if I see here... So, to the viewers out there, it's, um, you know, similar to the other watches we described. But the unique thing is it's got a a bezel um, that's similar to, I would say, a dive watch bezel. um, But it's got 15, 30, and 45-minute indicators, uh, numerals on the bezel as indicators. And it's got... um, large markings for every five minutes, uh, inverted triangle on the 12 o'clock and multiple smaller markers per on the minute side of the bezel. And I believe this is also rotating as well. So you can use it for other features as well. Right, 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 right. Um, but beautiful watch. And it came in this unique, um, watch strap, this unique watch leather strap. Uh, yeah, it's called the bone strap, which is basically this huge piece of leather, and then it was like a NATO strap backed by another huge piece of leather uh, behind it. So yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, it's not for me. I've seen people wear it. It just seems like like you look like a Roman soldier with it. It looks a little bit too much, but it's cool. You know, it, it, it completes the watch. You know? Right. And yeah, these are... From, yeah, but the, the... So this same design, Hoyer, Leonidas, and actually... Sin also has a watch that's exactly the same spec. Yes, exactly. So, Sin actually well got into the competition and basically supplied watches to the military. Um, and yeah, very similar. And both these watches are actually extremely collectible. So, oh, the yeah. Sin watches was issued in 69. It was called the Sin 1550. Um, yeah. Very similar movement to the Hoyer. Um, they call it the Vashu 230 movement. Don't ask me what the difference is between the two. Um, yeah. Then Sin also purchased Hoyer parts and sold several Sin dialed of these watches to civilians, but extremely rare and extremely expensive in the collector market. Yeah, I mean, a Hoyer bond is in, in itself a thing that's everyone's after and the the sin bond is I, I i would think it would come under what a hoyer bond would cost but i don't know i don't know what the secondary market is right now because sometimes you've got quirky things with it where, where even the the second model is more valuable than the first so i'm not sure but uh, both are very very desirable very beautiful watches i'll we'll put a link in the show notes yeah so sin actually over i mean took over the contract for servicing these watches so yeah. If you say sent in your old Hoyer bond, basically you got replaced with swim, sin replacement dials, um, and this eventually led to the sin one five six, which was a continuation of the classic Bund chronograph. Um, so, yeah, sin has been in the game for a while. 
supplying uh, watches. Uh, and then I have... So what year is this? So next we've got, I think, my personal favorite, which mm. is the uh, Orfina Porsche Design 3H uh, German military watch. Yeah, I mean... This is a very modern update. Um, I don't know how to even approach describing it. It had an in- internal bezel. Yep. Uh, but um, it was a full chrono. It had a GMT and a day date. And it was actually built by the company Orfina, um, to the design of the Porsche car company. And to this day, Porsche Orfina is still a thing. I actually went to the New York Auto Show and I saw a Porsche Orfina watch. Really? That, uh, yeah, that, that uh, collaboration still continues. Um, but this specific design is a very modern update. It looks like nothing. It came before it. Um, it very space age. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the notes to, to this watch. This is my, my first watch that I, I remember being like, wow, I, I really need to get that watch. When I was getting into watches, this is the watch that really caught my eye. I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is up your alley, though, Sedge. Oh, this is definitely up my alley. It's very similar to, like, the Sin 144. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, like, a very 70s, 80s look to it. Um, but I, I love this watch. Uh, I've kept an eye open for it forever. I can never find one at the right price for me. But, uh, um, Related to the Porsche Orfina is um, the Tutima Bund, which was also a, a single block uh, integrated bracelet, very similar layout, GMT. Um, it's not GMT. It's got the winged seconds hand. That's why I keep saying GMT. But it's a day-date uh, internal bezel. Uh, just a very cool space-age design. And and the, the Tutima came out a little bit later, right? 83, I think? Yeah, it came out in 83. Three and before that, there was another company called Arctos. Okay. Um, it's very. It was strange because a lot of these, the Tutima, the Porsche design, even the Sin and the Arctos. If you look at their watches, they were all very similar. I mean, I guess it was meant to meet the requirements of the military, the Air Force, or whoever was being supplied to the military. For example, with Arctos, it was supplied to the Army Air Corps of the Federal Forces of Germany. Um, okay. Looked like exactly like the Orfina watch, and all of these watches were powered by the, I guess the the workhorse, which was the Lamania fifty one hundred. Legendary chronograph, yeah. Automatic, yeah. Legendary, actually, the you know, it's so legendary that it, people consider that the. Uh, let me rephrase that. People consider the Speedmaster Grail watch. Um, and that watch has one of the versions of the Speedmaster, which they call it the Grail watch, was had the Lemania fifty one hundred. If I'm correct, right? Yep. No, it is, and that's it's considered the Grail. It's actually considered the Grail because some guy on the internet called it the Grail, but it's caught on. And uh, yeah, it's a very unique uh, movement, very very versatile. Um, I'm actually going to link up an article that Warren Wan did on the movement itself, and uh, it covers. Um, the Sin watch, um, the Sin military watch, and the Omega Speedmaster that has the same movement in it. Yeah, um, it's a very cool kind of. People look out for this movement. Like some people are like movement nerds, and that's what they go after. Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, the Lamania Fifty One Hundred to have one example is considered, you know, a thing to strive for. Yeah, and to the viewers out, th- uh, listeners out there. Um, the key thing with the Lemania, as far as from an aesthetic point of view, where you can tell is that it's got its tri-register. So it's got um, registers on the 6, 9, and 12 position. And they also have a day-date as well. So a lot of functionality and, and a robust, very reliable movement used in a variety of watches, including military watches. And it's an automatic, right? It, 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 but... I think Seiko beat them to it, right? The Colonel Pogue is is the first automatic car, yeah. so that beat the Lamania fifty one hundred. Yep, and these are you know no nonsense, you know very similar to basically a Flieger watch. I mean, I mean they were built to a purpose, so things like Geneva stripes and all that stuff was not there. Yeah, very very no nonsense, not super polished, but um, kind of beautiful in their own way, and. Yeah. Uh, kind of watch that you know you would expect a german air force pilot to be wearing in the 70s or 80s yep. uh, it's a very unique look and yep. you know my personal favorite is the 
Tutima Bond um, or the Porsche Rafina Bond, yeah. uh, which is just the updated look uh, towards the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Um, but even the old old Fliegers are beautiful. You know, I mean, oh, definitely. I mean, IWC is selling, you know, the Mark eighteen, which is a callback to the Mark eleven, which really is a callback to the Type A. So, I mean, really, the Type A watch is still a very desirable design. It's still still out there. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, to listeners out there as well, the way Tommy and I really started talking about watches or, you know, collaborating on watch discussions and chats was the Tutima Bund because, Tommy, that you... That was my favorite watch for a while. Yeah, because you were on the hunt. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I could never find one that I liked for the price that I wanted, um... And I, you know, and I ended up falling in love with the Speedmaster, and I got a Speedy. But uh, I've always had this in the back of my mind, and even today, like if if I see one for a good price, like that, that urge is there. But you know, I I know better. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's now beyond budget. I would say, right? Um, I'm looking right now. So Chrono Twenty Four's got two team of buns for a two two grand plus. Um, oh, that's not too bad. I thought they were going to be doubled. No, it's not too bad actually. You can get. I'm seeing one from Spain, private seller, uh, 2200 with the metal bracelet. And it looks like it's in pretty good shape. Nice. So, you know, it's doable. It's not the end of the world. But yeah, I mean, this was the one I always. It's a bit chunky, you know. So it's not like something you could really wear day to day to work or anything. It seems a little bit aggressive, but I love it. I would wear day to day. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're not a you're not a corporate desk jockey like me, you know, so I got to keep up appearances. Tommy, you are a blue collar blue jeans guy. That's right. I, look, I go to the I go to the factory every day. You know? Yeah, you supposed to wear watches like this to work. <laughs> um, but yeah. speaking of which, um, one thing I wanted to touch upon is so, you know, the Flieger watches they've changed over time. You know, we always talk about how they still use today. Um, Sin actually was part of making a specification or a standard called the DIN 8330, which was a, a basically a list of specifications similar to like the ISO 6425 for dive watches. Okay. So they have worked in partnership and with the test staff. And test stuff is being the technical standard for pilot watches. Um, between is that Sin, a German agency? Yep, yeah, it was a German agency, and it was jointly developed by the Aachen University of Applied Sciences and Sin in 2012. Yeah. So very similar to dive watches. It have, needed to meet a certain requirements, legibility, um, illumination, um, and the other interesting thing is, let me see if I can bring my notes here. It had to go through some side of testing where it had to go through pressure cycles. Yeah. To simulate, you know, the kind of environments that it faces, the a pilot really faces, even um, flying modern planes. Because in a modern jet, you know, say you take off from sea level and you're 30,000 feet, you're pressurized in a cabin of, say, 8,000 feet. Yeah. Six to eight thousand feet now. So you have these testing requirements that actually go through those cycling methods, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I speaking of sin. So there's one flieger that I didn't mention, and it's more of a recent release. So it's not a historic flieger, um, but it's the sin three five six, which came out in 1996. Are you familiar with this? The names, the number sounds familiar. I'm just trying to. I'm looking it up now exactly what it looks like but keep on going yeah it's a 35 millimeter watch um it's one of their lower kind of you know entry level watches um it's a beautiful flieger i mean it looks it's almost got like a speedy look to it you know it's just the way the the, the black and white dial is kind of put together um but it's ah, yes. Val- yep 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 yeah it's got a valju 7750 movement um you know Tri-compact, so not bi-compact. So you've got a minute counter at 12, small seconds at 9, and an hour counter at 6. Yep. Um, and the date-date um, at 3. Uh, but it's an absolutely killer watch. And if you get it on the steel band, oh, man, it, it looks awesome. Yeah. i, I got to tell you, for the mo- modern Flieger look, 
I, this is the one I would go for. Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. This is a fantastic watch, and it's a small watch, yes, but the way they adjusted the registers, it only yeah. cuts out the posi- the numeral that the registers are positioned at. It doesn't cut out anything more. For example, like the twelve o'clock register, it only cut out well, the twelve. It yeah, the twelve nine and six are cut off registers, and then that's the it. Clock has the day date. Yeah. And it doesn't cut off the two or the four or the ten or the eight, which some some chronographs do, and that kind of like irks me a lot. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's but, another one very similar and much cheaper, and they I don't know if they still do it, but Hamilton had something very similar, which I almost purchased a couple years ago. Which one was that? It was it's it's the Hamilton khaki chrono. I don't know the right, I can't remember the right model, but it, it looks exactly like the Sin three five six. Um, it's an automatic? Yep. It's an ETA, yeah, we'll ETA-based here. movement. All right, we'll put it in the show notes. We don't have yeah. to uh, no, drag no. it. But uh, if you find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But that's pretty cool. It's pretty killer. I mean, I really like the Sin 356. It's uh, it's really attractive, I got to tell you. Oh, for sure. You know? So, uh, I believe that covers it. Is that right, Tommy? Or do you want to... Is there anything else I'm missing on my no, side? I, I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, as far as Fliegers that I'd want to get, I'd say the 356 is up there. And I'd say the the classic Porsche Orfina slash Tutima Bones. Those are right up my alley. Um, the Type A, Type B, I like it, but you know, a little too simple for me right now. I think it's a little too dated. But uh, yeah, yeah th- those two models are really top of my line. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, anything Sim 144... The one I really love to get is the uh, Sim 144 Diapal, so it's got an additional complication of having a GMT. Oh, well. wow. Yeah, it, those are hard to find, and when you do find them, really expensive. Wow. I gotta look this up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a busy watch, but it's awesome. <coughs> So, that's Fliegers. We got that covered. What else do you want to talk about? Well, I think I've got some news. I don't know. Are you ready for this? Oof. (laughs) Should we do a drum roll? I don't know if you've got a soundboard. This is where you should insert sirens or uh, champagne pops. I'm literally doing a drum roll on the laptop. (laughs) So, uh, this is a new watch alert. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I saw a good deal on... um, the interwebs for uh, one of my New Year's resolutions, which was to get the uh, John Player Special Seiko. Uh, oh this, wow, nice! Yeah, this is specifically the uh, Seiko six one three eight dash eight zero three nine automatic chronograph. Um, you know, it came out. You know, I think nineteen seventy something. Oh. Um, but it's it's basically the racing inspired chronograph, so it had the uh, John Player Special livery. It's a golden black. Um, so, to the viewers out there, was it a black dial with gold registers? Yeah, black dial, dual dual register, uh, day date. Um, the watch actually came out in 1977. So, just to uh, just to give you some reference of time, and I got the full the full set. You know, they got the guy had the links, the golden the golden steel links that came wow. with it. It was basically the whole the whole thing, and. Um, I gotta say, I love that watch. You know, it's uh, it keeps a, a perfect time. Um, 40, 40 millimeters. It's the perfect size. Um, the only thing I noticed is it's a little bit high, so it okay. sits on the wrist a little higher than most watches do. Is it just but, a thick case? Yeah, the case. I guess the chronograph movement um, sits taller. That's what I mean. So gotcha. It's not, yeah, so it's a little bit thicker than I would be accustomed to, but it's a it's a killer watch, and I actually just put it in for service. I had I, I actually had some issues with it um, getting it to start again. I, I was using it for almost three weeks, and then basically it stopped. And it was kind oh of boy! Yeah, I, I kind of freaked out, so I, I took it to service, and uh, they're working on it. I'm supposed to get it back this week or next week. Um, okay, but, you know this is a watch from 1977. You know, you yeah, I mean to work perfectly all the time but i got a good price on it to buy so i'm okay spending a little bit of money to get it serviced yeah i mean you know you and hopefully i'm pretty sure knowing you you probably took it to a good um shop to service probably someone certified seiko i took it to a legit seiko servicer so um but no that's exciting congratulations on the watch i know you you are 
you were hunting every day on uh, Seiko, classic Seiko chronograph, and you're one of the lucky few to own one, which is great. Um, yeah. I wouldn't... I'm pretty sure that's only going to appreciate in value, so think of it, think of it also as an investment. Yeah, uh, I mean, you look at pristine examples on... Well, you know, I hate to bring up eBay, but bring up eBay. You can go anywhere from nine hundred bucks all the way to two thousand, two thousand five hundred. So, to actually have a properly serviced John Player Special with the full metal metal bracelet, um, hoping you know as an investment, it works out pretty well. Uh, yeah, but I can't imagine selling this thing. I I just got it. So right, you know, no, that's so, exciting. No, that's yeah, for sure. And that's probably your second oldest watch, right? Because you have a watch from a field watch, right? From the war era or near the war time era? Uh, I've got a World War II era infantry officer watch from Whitnauer. Right. So Whitnauer was the uh, corporate rela- relation to Longines. So basically, actually interesting you mentioned that. Basel World, Longines released a uh, classic military field watch, which... Uh, kind of weird. They actually bow aged the dial, so they actually like damage the dial or give the dial faux patina. Uh, I'm not talking about luminescence. They actually aged the actual dial itself. Oh wow! Uh, which is kind of bizarre. I, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, but that reissue is basically a reissue of the watch that I yeah. I have. And the irony is, the one that I have actually has real patina in it. It's like completely sun sunburnt. <laughs> like, yeah. The paint is stripped off for most of the dial. It's it's a, it's a really cool watch. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's basically the same model. But yeah, that's the oldest one in the collection right now. Nice. Yeah. And then I guess this one is the second oldest. Second oldest. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, the problem is when you get, when you get old watches, you know, you, you gotta you gotta build in that you're gonna have to take care of. It, you know? yeah. Somewhere along the line, something's gonna happen. So. so and, and then once hard. this is serviced, you know, it's probably it should last a, a lot, a, a long yeah, time. I mean, you know, a proper Seiko service should get you. Uh, I mean, the the watchmaker said four years, you should be fine. So, you know, that's not bad. I mean, look, it's an, it's an automatic chronograph, so it's a complicated movement. It's yeah. not, you know, you're not talking about a simple three-hander here. So Exactly. You know, I expect that. But, uh, yeah, you know, really excited. Can't wait to get it back from the watch, uh, get it back from the uh, the watch uh, watchmaker. So I will let you know how that shakes out next episode. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And... Looking forward to seeing that in person one day. Yeah, I, I think in the seventies, going back to the thickness of the watch. I mean, I think there were some chronographs that were pretty thick. Like the, uh, I would have to assume that the, the Mark Two, Mark Three, Mark Four Speedmasters were not thin at all. Um. um yeah, I mean, they they didn't. I've never seen any of them on wrist. I've I have the the professional, the Mark One, basically. Right. So I've never seen a Mark II on the wrist, but they do look like they stand up pretty tall. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it has to do with the movement, right? You've got an automatic movement, so you got a rotor. Right. Got a chronograph uh, module on top of the movement. So. But yeah. also that, I think even in the 70s, I think they were trying out funky designs as well, as far as cases. You know, like Rado had that, that, that funky case. Um, Which one? You're talking about the... I'm trying to think. Captain Cook? Not the Captain Cook, you know, more on the like, you know, for example, have you do you know what the Omega Flight Master looks like? Yes. Yeah, you know the case, it's pretty chunky. Yeah, it's called a Tonneau case. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, there you go. So I wonder if the Tonneau case back then was a lot more popular than it is today. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the Speedmaster 1 was up in space, they they were pushing the Speedmaster 2, which was that Tonneau case, but um I don't, you know, there's a story why it wasn't fully adopted. I, I think it, they just didn't bother. They loved the Speedmaster Mark One, so they never went there. But yeah, I mean, they, they evolved the Speedmaster Pass, right? They did Speedmaster 3, 4. Was a, there's an unofficial 4.5. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the Tenno case is pretty, it's it's controversial. It's not for everybody. No, it's funky. And I like, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. You got the uh, JPS coming, so I'll, I'll I'll put some pictures up on uh, um, on the show notes to show show people what it looked like. But yeah, it's it's a killer watch. I, I can't wait. Nice. Yeah. All, All right. So should a... we move on to news and notes? Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, what's the first thing you want to cover? Um, 
actually the first one I want to cover is a two-parter. So it's actually an, an article of a recent naval exercise where uh, British and U.S. submarines actually got to the North Pole. And they do this every two years, and it's kind of kind of secretive. But this year they kind of uh, let the media come along and they took some pictures. And basically they they took three submarines and they, they rendezvoused in the North Pole, which is in itself a very complicated thing to do. And then all three just popped out and they did some exercises. They uh, were doing some drills uh, in the North Pole. They were doing some scientific uh, scientific uh, testing, and uh, it's it's a really unusual thing uh, to be done. And especially now, it's bigger than ever. I think they're anticipating some Russian activity in the North Pole and the Arctic, so they're really prepping for it. Um, but I, I'll put a note to the article on what what exactly this exercise is all about. And uh, interestingly, there's a video released on YouTube. Um, so you can actually see the naval guys uh, planning, popping out through the North Pole and working together. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, no, that's pretty crazy. Even like just navigating, and uh, it it's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, no, that, that's I I don't know how hard it is to navigate up to the North Pole to be honest, but um, I'm sure. It's... Yeah, I mean the thing is like you really can't use. My understanding is you can't use GPS when you're under underwater, right? So. Right. You have to rely on sonar and existing mapping technology because the signal from the satellite is not going to get to the bottom of the ocean where the submarines are. Right. right? So they can't rely on GPS. So it's it's a navigation navigation exercise like no other. And then to rendezvous three boats within you know uh, a football field of each other and then pop them up through the ice together without any incident, it's it's uh, pretty complicated and it's pretty really pretty cool. You got to see yeah. the video. Yeah, and there were some diving exercises also conducted at, in in these uh, in this in this whole exercise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a whole scientific thing that they do, and they also do some diving exercises. And of course, they also plan, you know, if they need to launch nuclear missiles, which is the original job of these subs, uh, to pop them out through the ice and do that. They, they they do that as well. So it's the whole gamut. So, what is the next thing you wanted to cover? Next thing I wanted to cover was actually a movie on Amazon Prime that I'm midway through, but I was very excited to find it. Um, and this actually harkens back to a story that we discussed, I think, episode one or episode two, uh, which is about this little-known Soviet mission in the 80s, where one of their satellites was completely damaged and hurtling through space, and they send these two astronauts to go rescue the satellite. Um, that's a, It's space station, I mean. It's called the Salyut 7. And the movie is on Amazon Prime. It's called Salyut 7. And it's, it's basically a more dramatized version of that story. It's uh, You can kind of pitch it as the Russian version of Apollo 13. And it's, an, it's a true story. And it's uh, it's amazing. It's a, you know really fancy flying. Two guys that really had a lot of guts to go up there and save this space station against uh, all the odds. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, you're in the orbit of space and you know if something goes wrong they could completely get out of orbit and yeah i mean basically the satellite lost power so yeah. it was hurtling out of orbit to earth and this was a big issue obviously the russians didn't want this disaster to be made public especially in 1985 when you know you've got this super superpower rivalry um, so everything was to be done to either ditch this thing safely or to bring it back to life right and um you know, a little known fact is that, you know, the Russians actually have an automated docking system. Yep. When you go to a Russian satellite, the Soyuz capsule automatically docks by computer. And because this um, this space station was dead, you didn't have a computer on the other end doing the docking. And it was literally tumbling through space. And a cosmonaut had to manually dock this thing. And they, they brought a they're basically their best pilot to do it. And it's, uh, it's an amazing story. And that's just the beginning. I mean, they have to bring this space station back to life. And uh, the movie's great. We're about halfway through it. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I, I would totally recommend the movie. And I would definitely recommend reading the article first so you know uh, kind of the story before you go on. Yeah, I mean, it, like manual docking just reminds me of uh, the scene Interstellar. from Interstellar. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was thinking that too because in Interstellar, there's a scene where you're manually docking a spinning object, and this is the exact same thing, but in real life, a cosmonaut had to do it. Yeah. And it is so extremely dangerous, right? Because you're going at such fast speed. 
you yeah. know, the smallest miscalculation in your, in your toast. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have – and these stations, they're not they're not built submarine strong, right? They were built for a specific purpose. For example, um, the lunar module on the Apollo missions, they were extremely fragile, but it was only designed to do what it needed to do. So if even if you're docking and relative speed to each other was very slow and you still made a mistake, it could have been catastrophic still. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had to say I'm a weight, so they really couldn't build these things to be – you know, take hits like that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Any well, chance you managed to see what watches these uh, cosmonauts were wearing? Oh, no. Sorry? <laughs> Any chance you managed to see the, what watches these cosmonauts were wearing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting you mentioned that, because I think you're, you're going to have an announcement pretty soon about that, huh? Uh, yes, yes. It'll be dis- described in the next uh, podcast, I would say, the next episode. Okay. All right. I'm excited. Yeah. Actually, no, they didn't They didn't show them show which... Uh, which watch they were wearing. So this was in the mid eighties. So I, I believe by the mid eighties, you know, post, uh, the thaw in U S Russian relations, post Apollo Soyuz, I'm fairly sure these cosmonauts were wearing Speedmasters. So probably, what, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, this is before the Russian space agency did their own thing, uh, yeah. later on. So they actually did Speedmasters as well, which is an unknown thing. Unknown fact. So, no, that, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, no, I definitely would love to check the movie. I, I, I got to see it myself, too. Yeah, put, put, it on, uh, put it on your list. It's, it's a great movie. Yep. And then the last one is uh, a show you went to just recently. Um, basically, the New York Auto Show. Um, pretty good show, I would say, nonetheless, from what I've seen in the news and in the pics. A bunch of new models. Does the Detroit Auto Show kind of compare or... And to be honest, the Detroit Auto Show is, I would say, fading from the spotlight. Um, Why is that? I mean, considering it's a, you know, such a, uh, you know, hotbed for auto manufacturing, auto design, why is that? So, a number of reasons that I can think of. So, first of all, you have four big North American auto shows, or U.S. auto shows. You have Detroit, you have Chicago, you have New York, and then you have L.A., now, if you look at the other cities apart from Detroit, you have a much larger population, and then you have a different, what should I say, um, a different demographic. For example, New York, you know, they would cater to more executive style, I would say, uh, sort of... Uh, market even in chicago so like cadillac they are their headquarters is actually based in new york um they actually released their new one which is the xt4 um and they did a release in in, in new york than then what typically was done in detroit which is actually kind of interesting so and the is other crossover what is that it's a small crossover uh it's about the size of the um what was it called? The Chevy Equinox. So okay. similar platform, but you know, mod- heavily modified to its uh, needs. Nice. Uh, Actually, it looks pretty nice. Yeah, and the other big announcement, at least by Cadillac, was the uh, the updated CT6, which is their top of the line sedan, luxury yeah. sedan. So the big news on that one is they released a new engine, which is a V8 twin turbo, 4.2 liter. Um, Pretty powerful, 550 horsepower. What was uh, that to compare with, like a BMW 7? I would say size-wise, yes, towards a 7. Um, but priced in between, say, a 5 Series and a 7 Series. How much does it? Oh, 54, I see, MSRP. But all the way up to, say, 90, if you oh, load one up. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, they released a new V8 because in the luxury market, you know, they still go the classic size engine cylinder sort of aspects you know v12s and yeah. v8 so cadillac did not have a v8 in its lineup so apart from the uh apart from say the escalade which was the classic small block v8 but you know they didn't have a high high power you know highly advanced engine like the german automakers have so they released this 4.2 liter V8 in, and and uh, yeah that that sounds pretty promising. Well, long story short, you know the 
they're releasing even the U.S. automakers are releasing models outside of outside of Detroit Auto Show. Right, right, right. And then the another reason is that, um, which, the, which what I'm hearing might be shifted over to the fall time is that the Detroit Auto Show starts in January, so it's in the middle of winter, um, freezing cold, so it doesn't attract as much. Uh, people coming in. Mind you, there is a bunch of people that still attend and, and go to the auto show, but it's it's uh, it's a lot different than, say, holding it in springtime, where you can a lot more people can attend. Yeah, I mean, it was still really cold when I went, um, but it was pretty well attended. I, I went on a Tuesday night, and it was, uh, it was pretty packed. Yeah. Um, but as far as what I saw while I was there, I, I, I gotta tell you, there are some there's a lot of emphasis on, uh, emphasis on electric models. Like there was an actual map on on the floor where we showed every electric car for every brand and where you could get to it. And I've never seen that before. I've gone to the auto show almost every year, and the emphasis on electric was uh, was really really heavy this year, uh, which I guess is indicative of where the industry is going. But um, that was an eye opener, and you know, I even down to supercars. You know, we I. I saw the uh, the Genesis Essentia um, prototype, which was you know basically I don't want to say star of the show, but it's a really killer design. It looks like a spaceship. Oh yeah, it's a fantastic looking uh, concept car for it's sure. Very aggressive. I, I I can't believe we're talking about a Hyundai, but you know. Hey, you know people said the same thing about um, Toyota when they said want to enter the luxury market and they came up with Lexus. They were like, you got to be kidding, but. When Lexus did come out with the LS four hundred back in the day, it was actually a legitimate competitor. I mean, they did not cheap out or do anything, and that's what um, Hyundai's trying to do with the Genesis brand. It's so sleek; it's really killer. I mean, yeah. you got. You, uh, I took a picture of it and put it on my Instagram. It's actually on the Twitter feed for our podcast, and uh, it's like nothing I've ever seen. And the front for the show, I'm sure if they ever run production, they would not do this, but. There's actually a glass panel on the hood that, you know, where you'd see an engine. It's just a row of batteries, and I think it's it's pretty sick. It's uh, it's really it's something out of Star Wars. Nice. Yeah. But yeah. So, no, I mean, not just that. I I think the one thing you may have caught off, but I know for a fact is the ever increasing uh, presence of SUVs and COVs coming into the market. It's ridiculous in my mind but that's where the market is heading towards and that's what people want so it's like and it's not just like suvs of back in the day even in the early 2000s where it was just you know fairly large suvs but um even smaller ones like the cadillac xt4 that i mentioned however the one that i thought that really caught my eye was actually the lincoln aviator um that was probably my production pick of the auto show. I think Lincoln really struck it well with the execution of that SUV. Lincoln Aviator? Really? Wow, okay. Why? What's what's so special? Uh, uh, so, I mean, if you look at the car, at the vehicle, um, it's very, the design's very unique to Lincoln, I would say. I mean, they took bits and pieces from other uh, automakers like the uh, the profile side profile. If you compare it to say a, a Range Rover Velar, it looks fairly similar. Um, the front grille, you know, Jag like. But if you look at the interior, you know, I think that's truly a Lincoln execution. I think that's what Lincoln was missing back in the you know from a few years ago, having identity, um, and. They they really struck it well, and I think you'll see that SUV sell out. I think so, eh? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the uh, they're they're struggling to keep up with the Navigator production. Um, they can't keep up because everyone's buying them. I'm surprised. I I had no idea. I thought that was like a dying brand. Uh, it was to a certain degree until they released the Navigator. Really, I mean, that really hit 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 it off for the brand. I think. Yeah. Um, well, another car that I noticed was that BMW B7 Alpina, which is that uh, twin turbo V8. It's like a seven series BMW. Yep. So Alpina is a tuning brand. Um, right. Very associated with BMW now to the point I think the warranty is even covered by BMW. Um, oh, okay. 
so it's for the discreet buyer who's wealthy buyer who does not want an M car. So M, M is the motorsports division of BMW. So like the M3, the M5. So like the M. So for Alpina, you know, you have this more discreet look, but still extremely powerful and extremely fast. And I think they took the speed limiter off the uh, Seven Series, so it goes what 180 something miles an hour. So the Alpina goes over 200. Oh wow. Yeah, it, it's it goes over two hundred. Actually, like, I'm not surprised it can. I was reading that they were doing testing and it they got to two hundred seven on it, which is insane because it's it's actually a pretty big car. It's it's huge. Oh yeah, but you see the power output. I think what is it? It's like over six hundred. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just was curious what the actual speed limit like if they put a limiter still even after delimiting it. Yeah, I, I I don't know about that, but uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was, it was impressive. That that really jumped out. So, cool. right, well, I think uh, I think we covered everything here, Sanchez. Yeah, you know, is always an interesting topic, and uh, you know, you and I both love that genre. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, more to pilot watches than um, just Fliegers. It's Fliegers is a very focused, I would say, but of a large breadth of pilot watches yeah i mean i don't think you can discuss pilot watches in one podcast exactly thing you really got to cut it down but i think fliegers it's a good it's a good little subgenre and uh you know you've got a lot of classic design that hasn't changed and then you've got a lot of uh, modern design which i think is really interesting the sim 356 is a modern reinterpretation of a classic oh yeah for sure one Uh, thing did we let our listeners know that we actually have a twitter feed from i don't think we did so yeah, we do have a Twitter feed. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Um, it's the actual feed is at the Land Jam Pod. Okay. Yeah. No. Sweet. We have a Twitter. Um, right now, it's mostly monitored by Tommy. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I've only made probably one post. Um, I'm not a big Twitter person myself, but doesn't mean I can't follow him and. I sure, encourage yeah, you all to follow us uh, at the Land Jam Pod on Twitter, and uh, you know basically it's watches, cars, aviation, you know, yeah. pretty much stuff that we love. Yeah, Tommy does a great job in putting those uh, finding articles that we both like and just posting them. Yeah, piques our interests. Yep. So yeah, please follow us on on Twitter. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud if you haven't yet. And, uh, you know, uh, we look forward to speaking again. Yeah, awesome. So thank you very much. And we'll record another one in the near future. Thank you.